Hey there. Welcome to the fifth episode of A Leg Up. In case you haven't been listening, my name's Adam Faze, and I'm an 18-year-old here in Los Angeles. I'm going around asking people in the entertainment industry how they got to where they are today and what their advice is for myself as a filmmaker. Today's episode is with a man who has widely been known as one of the most influential actors in film history, Gary Oldman. Known for being an actor's actor, Gary was nominated for an Academy Award in a leading role for the 2012 film Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. He starred with nothing and can now boast of having a filmography that has a worldwide gross of over $8 billion. He's been everyone from Dracula to Beethoven to Sirius Black to Commissioner Gordon and has been directed by Francis Ford Coppola, Oliver Stone, Luc Besson, and Christopher Nolan, among other award-winning filmmakers. We started by talking about his childhood. Here's what he had to say. It really was, it was more, it was like an event. Now there's an event every week. Mm -hmm some big movie opening um but there was a sort of excitement and an anticipation around the cinema uh, my first exposure to it we had a local my local um the sort of local cinema i think it was the astoria um used to do these programs on a Saturday morning and they were called Saturday morning pictures. And you would go and you would see shorts and then there would be a feature. But it was mainly for a few pennies. You could go and mm -hmm. see Tom Mix. You could go and see um, Roy Rogers, Charlie Chaplin, um, and they were, some were 10 minutes and some were 15 minutes. So you would go and sort of see shorts. But the first experience that I had at the, at the, in the cinema um, was my, my sister t took me to see A, a Hard Day's Night. Um, and I remember it um, as if it was yesterday. So that was, uh, I was a pretty big, I was a, f a, a fan of, um, of, of movies and TV shows, especially American TV shows, because we used to get, you know, my favorite Martian, Munsters, Batman, you know, um, and I used to do voices and impersonations and characters um, I may, I made actually a Batman suit when I was um, I must have been about seven my mother had this sort of very wide white um, sort of 60s belt 
and I remember that I stuck cigarette packets to it and then painted it yellow <laughs> and made it into a utility belt like uh, Adam West. So I guess I was, you know, I had a good, I had a good ear even back then, you know, and I could, you know, my party trick was I was five and I could sort of, sort of impersonate the Beatles and stuff like that. So I was, I was always modeling. I liked models and, and, and painting and drawing and, and, um, my nan had a old brownie Kodak Bakelite camera. And I used to always remember taking endless photographs with it. With, and there was no film in yeah. it, but I liked the feel of it in my hand and looking through the viewfinder and snapping away, taking pictures. Um, And there wasn't really much. It, I mean, I was obviously on, I, I was not on that sort of grammar school university track. Right. I was not academic. I was just more always living on, on the moon, you know, in my head. So I was more creative rather than... Um, than an academic so it 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 was it i mean the what i was i was good at school i was good at sports i was very athletic and it was all all the things of uh, like uh, what they called back then technical drawing plans you know side front top elevations and all right. that kind of thing um, I was very good at art. I liked English. Um, it, it, so anything that was woodwork, we used to have classes. We, it's not a compulsory thing now, but it was compulsory back then. And you would have woodwork and metalwork. So you would... I remember learning how to make, you know, a dovetail joint and and welding and riveting and all that kind of stuff so i was always very good at that because i was just very i was very good with my mm. i was very good with my hands and i was um i had good balance you know i was very um i had a facility for sports and things i was uh very quick on my feet good balance so it was always um It was all that, that, it was that kind of thing. Um, so I, what I'm saying is, I, I guess that the th it was, something was there. Right. But I didn't really know sort of what to do with it. Um, and then when I was 16, 15, I I saw a movie on TV. I saw the preview, The Coming Attraction. And it was a, 
a, a movie I, I haven't seen since, and it may not hold up. It may not survive the test of time. But it was a British movie directed by a guy called Brian Forbes. And its English title was The Raging Moon. And it starred Malcolm McDowell, a young Malcolm McDowell. And I remember saying to my mum, you know, when, when the, the, the late news is finished, we should watch this because this looks really interesting. And um, it changed my life. And I thought, you know, there's a story um, that John Lennon used to tell where he was, he was just uh, um, fascinated and completely taken by the phenomenon of Elvis. I mean, that was the thing, obviously, the rock and roll was uh, was their their escape or their avenue? That's what they were sort of pursuing. But and he loved uh, music, but was completely amazed at the phenomenon of Elvis. And he said that you would go to see a movie, and the girls, I mean, were lining up literally around the block, which is you know the a blockbuster as right. they as they called it. And he said, and we would go and sit there. And he said, and every time Elvis came on the screen, these girls, the audience went crazy. And he was sitting there thinking, you know, that's a good job. I'd like to do that. And I, I, that's how I felt about Matt Malcolm and the film at 15. I, remember watching this film and the wheels started to turn, you know, having never acted right. or read a play. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. And did it seem like there was just this huge road ahead of you that was unclear at the time? I mean, was it... Oh, the, I mean, people from where I came from, I mean, you had... You had the Terence Stamps and you had the Michael Caines, and, but it was not something that you went, you, that you even thought about right. doing it. You either became a panel beater or a policeman or, or became, you know, a criminal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't I mean, option. I contemplated, <laughs> I thought about all sorts of things up to that point. Um, you know, working for the post office or, you know, I loved music and I was now, by now, you know, I used to have little odd jobs and things I used to do and save my pocket money and go and buy, you know, David Bowie albums. And I used to listen to Motown and James Brown, some Elton John and you know, then the punk thing happened and the clash arrived and all of that. But and the who 
um, I missed the Beatles because I was too young. I knew the I knew right. e- every lyric, but but I never saw them. But uh, um, I saw the the Who in like nineteen seventy three at Charlton Athletic Stadium. Um, so I was into music, into the arts, I guess. Um, I don't know why I never pursued that thing of the fascination I had with the camera, um, but that came later. I, I sort of revisited that. Um, but yeah, it seemed impossible that some little kid from South London could become an actor. And, you know, when that finally, when that, when that happened and I was, uh, I left drama school and then got into repertory theater and I got my first paycheck, which I think was about $15, the equivalent to $15 before tax. Um, and I couldn't believe it, you know, as a young 20-year-old thinking, you know, my God, they're paying me to do this and I would do it for nothing, you know. Um, the, then the, the, the idea of being in films was even, even though I'd got that far, I'd moved that many spaces on the board. I then thought the movies were just something that those other guys, those other, those other people um, did. So that was a whole um, uh, I don't know what do you call it? I mean I worked really hard I was completely and utterly committed to it. You've got to be balls in. Your your life depends on it. You have to come at it with such just a a ferocity, a, a, a passion, because it's so tough that you've got to get the knocks and then get back up. I know lots of talented people, lots of talented actors that just never really, they don't work enough or they never got the break or they didn't even get a career at all. 98%, 98 98.9% of the profession is out of work at any one given time. And they're doing, they're going up for auditions or they're, you know, they're waiting tables or they're doing whatever they're doing to make a living because they're not making a living from acting. And it, and it, and it could be a whole uh, number of things that, that, are, that is not happening. Right. And, and it could be the commitment. It, it, they may, 
they may be very talented, but they might be lazy or the agent, the, 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 the manager. I don't know. It could be a whole, whole bag of things that, that, is in, that is preventing them from breaking through. Um, luck is involved. It's that, that's also an ingredient part of it. So when you were 15 or 16, um, how did you start to go pursue acting as a career? Or what point did you decide to pursue it as a career? Well, I, I knew, I knew enough. I knew that I had to, if I really wanted to do it, then I would have to go to university or, you know, drama school. Right. I would have to do it that way that meant that it was three years and i would have to do two pieces i would have to do a shakespeare or a classical and a modern to audition to get in and there was a local theater youth theater um and i went there um, I I called them up and and I mean now this is the, the, this is these the these are the the days when you would have to you know we didn't have a telephone at home we would go to a local call box if we made a call so you would go, I would, you know, take myself off to one of those red, old right. English red call boxes, you know, and I'd take out the directory and I'd leaf through and find the number and the address for, for, the, for, the, for the Greenwich Youth Theatre. And then I called up and got um, an appointment there. And it just so happened that the artistic director that that day was was around and i said i've just got this idea i think i want to be an actor and um and he for a short period of time sort of took me under his wing and like a mentor you know and coached me for, for, for school having I had no idea I'd be any good at it or right. no one had said, oh, my God, you're a talented young man. You know, you should think about being an actor. I just decided one day that's what I'm going to do. And did you tell your parents that you wanted to? Well, my mom, yeah. She was um, supportive. I mean, so... Uh, No, my mum was just always. I, I, you know, I think I'm probably a little. I'm, I'm, I think I'm like that as a, as a, as a dad. You know, it's. I mean, I know that there are some parents who'd say, "Absolutely not! You're going to be a doctor, or you're going to be this, or you're going to be that." You know what I mean? It's, you can't even entertain the idea. It's unheard of. Um, but my, my. I want, I want to, I want to see passion. That you know, if if you love something and you're passionate, then I'm then I'm all for encouraging it and saying, well, then you know, give it a go.
you know. Um, as you get older in life, there's a lot that we're going to do that we don't want to do. Um, and when you're young and you're dreaming, then go for it. Um, and my mum just said, sure, if that's what you think you want to do. Um, I had a couple of auditions. It didn't go very well. And I was just uh, disheartened. I thought, you know, I didn't get I didn't get into the place I wanted to get into, which was the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. So I got turned down, and that was a bit of a knock, setback. But I continued, um, finished the round of auditions for that year, and was accepted at the uh, Rose Bruford College. Of speaking drama and that happened to be um, it was good for me actually it was it, now now looking back it was a degree course it was a Bachelor of Arts honours degree in theatre history in, in you know so it 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 was a sort of very academic it was an, a sort of academic based but but running with in tandem with all the all the the practical, um, so you 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 studied plays and um, a, lo a lot of work, a lot of reading that, that was required, but it was it was good because it was a catch up for me. Right. Um, and I, I, I loved it. I mean, it was just, and you just, all, all things acting, all, all things acting and it was movement and it was dance and it was speech. It was fencing. It was the academic side. It was improvisation, it was studying text, it was, you know, usual kind of, <coughs> pardon me. And, um, and I, you know, did a lot of growing up there. I was still very, a bit of a, bit of a slow learner. You know, I was a latecomer to it, I guess. I was quite, I was... I was younger than my years when I was at um, when I was at college, but it was a but it was. I mean, that's what it's for, anyway. Right. You know, you. That's why it, it's not it's not just about the course. It's about having responsibility. Being in a city, taking care of yourself, meeting, uh, meeting uh, different people, being immersed in a different culture, you know, culturally, it's um, 
So it's all those things. It's not. It's not just about I don't know. Learning about the camera or how to take a photograph. You know, it's um. It's a place where you can grow up. It's also a place where you can make mistakes, because it's not the world stage. No one's looking at you, judging you. They're encouraging you to to make mistakes because you're just going for it. Um, so I did a lot of growing up. Um, I was I was the first person in my year to get a job, and it and that isn't necessarily be, because I was um, an exceptional student in any way. I, I I I just I did. I wrote my letters. I had my picture taken. You know, my headshot. My I just did all the work when yeah. other people were in the pub, fucking around. I was working. And I got a job. And what was the job? I went to, uh, I did a season at uh, York Theatre Royal. And that was my beginning. I got my equity card and um, sort of was on my way. And so how, does, how did your career rise as a theatrical actor? Uh, well, I had my eye on certain things. Um, I, I wet my feet as it were in rep, some very good, some very good places that I worked, some good, really some good roles, but I had my eye on the Royal Court Theatre in London. I love the work, the, the, the history of, of the place was every great, every major playwright, every actor, director, worth anything, had gone through the court. And the artistic director at that time was a guy called Max Stafford Clark, and I would go and see these uh, these productions, and was spellbound. You know, he was the guy, the director, um, and it was most beautiful. It was a it was Victorian. It's a Victorian theatre. It's it seated then. I think four hundred and one. I, and now I think it's slightly. They slightly. They did a, a remodel on the, yeah. on the on the building, and the, but they kept the auditorium. I just think that they put in a few extra seats and things. But um, it it was one of those spaces, beautiful sort of jewel box of a theatre. The dress circles very close. Um, it doesn't hold a great many people. Um, you can be intimate on the stick. You can be both intimate and epic. It can hold both. Right. And you can literally talk like I'm talking now and whisper. And you can be heard, you know. Um, and uh, 
I I was in a play in a really terrific role, Lenny in Edward Bond's Saved. And it was out in the boondocks somewhere, you know, but I wrote to Max, the artistic director, and I said, look, I love your work. I'd really like you to come see mine. And damn it, he came. <laughs> Cast me in a new play, a wonderful new play by Ron Hutchinson called The Rat and the Skull. Um, I went in, I read, got it, and I spent the next sort of two years at the court, you know, different productions. Um, and that's what, that was the, the big London showcase. That's sort of what caught me. Particularly, uh, uh, I did a play, uh, an Edward Bond play called The Pope's Wedding. And I played the lead in that. And it was um, a great, but Max directed, it was a great production, a great, great piece, great role. So that sort of was the first thing that really had got me noticed. Um, I had been in the West End, but uh, I, I mean, I don't know how to say it other than it was a, a seminal thing. You know, it was the role that sort of put me on the map kind of thing. Um, had my eye on the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, ended up working there. And while I was performing at the RSC, I auditioned for Sid Vicious and Sid and Nancy. Um, and I just thought it was sort of inane I thought the hell wants to see a love story about these losers and um, uh, turned it down a couple of times and I said to my agent I don't really want to I don't really want to want to do it you know the that whole thing it's slightly I'd miss the punk thing a bit I was, like I say, I was I was more into soul, Motown, and all that kind of thing. And um, so the the punk. If I'd been a cup, maybe just a generation, you know what I mean? Right. It was it it was a voice. It spoke to a generation that I was I just missed right. kind of thing. And um, but. I hadn't made a feature film. I'd done some television, a couple of movies. In fact, you've had a Channel 4, um, film on 4, film right. 4. I was in the first film um, in the late 80s. Oh, okay. Of, of the, of, of, at the beginning of film 4. Um, in a... In a lovely lovely little film called remembrance um 
directed by a guy called Colin Gregg. Um, and that was the first thing ever, first thing ever I'd done in front of a camera. And, uh, but my agent said, you know, you know, you know, you've not done a feature film and, and, and it was, it, you know, the role was challenging and, and I thought it, it filmed in, you know, California, it filmed in New York and it, and I thought it would be, um, I thought, hey, you know, why not? Why not? It it wasn't. It was just the. It was the subject matter, you know. I. It, what, what did I know? Mm -hmm. You know, who who would want to go see this? And then, of course, it becomes a sort of cult classic. And um, hang on a second. Just let this. <laughs> come on, come on. Scratching at the door. Come on. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's how the, the film's career kind of, um, happened and then it, it was just, it just so happened. It, it was one of those things that was just luck. I had played Sid Vicious I did Sid. Then I went back to the Royal Court and did a play. And um, and I didn't even think of pursuing a film career. It was just something that happened. I got cast as this punk, went off and did it, you know, made more money than I'd ever seen working in the theatre. Um, came back, went back to the Royal Court, and then Stephen Frears was casting and cast me as Joe Alton. So I was very lucky that I sort of did Sid Vicious and Joe Alton, like back to back. So that was the, that was the sort of... Uh, those two roles, I think, were the, probably the, the the springboard that got me into uh, people. You know, casting directors and people just suddenly, it's like, it's like anything. You know, it was. You you can only really be a sensation once, you know. It, and it was this new kid, this new young actor caused a bit of a splash and um and it just really sort of started to to, to my, my film career then really started to sort of pick up and it was at the very beginnings there was um i was you know going up for these roles with a young Colin Firth, a young Tim Roth, a young Daniel Day-Lewis. You know, we were all starting out. Um, and a few others, too, that have left the train, <laughs> so to speak. But... Uh, 
and then I would do a film and a play, a film mm -hmm. and a play. You know, I would sort of bounce between the two. And, um, and then the film work became more and more and more. And uh, and it just started to, it really just started to happen. Did you prefer to act in plays over films as far as acting goes? Um, as far as how movies are shot, did you prefer being in a play on stage? Well, you have a life in a play. You have a, a, a whole life for two hours, mm -hmm. three hours. Um, you tell a story. There's an art that you follow. And it's, you know, in continuity. You have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, and you, you know, there's a point, there's a point when, when there's a point in a, that a director in the theatre really has to surrender the play to the actors. They're, I mean, he, he stages it and digs in and we all do, you know, it's very, it, it's more collaborative and, you, and you're rehearsing which you don't get a chance to do on film, not anymore. Um, people wonder why they're not very good. And you go, well, you know, we just all turned up and had two takes. I did it, I did it all in my kitchen. You know, you just do it in your kitchen and then get there and, you know, fly by the seat of your pants. So, What I, I I missed the the camaraderie. I missed the company of an of a group mm -hmm. of actors coming in every day and like working on the play. But there is that point, I think, where a, you know a director gives the play over to the actors, and you know you're not relying on sound effects or an editor. You are your own editor you can slow the play down, you can speed it up. You know, there might be some nights where you take five minutes off the play. You know what I mean? There are nights when you're a little sluggish and you think, you know, and you get, maybe, you know, you might get together in the interval and just say, you know, sure, it's a bit, let's pick up, let's pick it up tonight. But, but you, you're in control. You know, whatever happens, the director right. isn't going to stand up in the middle of the performance and go, "Oh no, wait a minute, wait a minute, we never, we never, we never did it like that," or, you, you know, you may he may come backstage afterwards and give you a bollocking, you know. Um, uh, but you are, you own it. You 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 don't in film, right? It's a different thing. Entirely, and I got, I, I got, I got to like it more and more. Yeah, as one got you, you one, you have to get used to. You know, you have to block out a lot of things for film. You know, you are aware of the audience. Right. You know, in the in the in the in the theatre because you are. 
you might be doing it for you and the others around you, but you are ultimately doing it for an audience. And you don't lose, you don't, people sort of say, oh, I completely got lost in the rough. You know, you're playing a comedy, you know, you're in a Neil Simon play. You, you have to, you know that they're there because you deliver a line and they laugh and you go, wait, wait, wait. And then, you, you know, you're not going to just run through the play and speak over the laughter. Suddenly, they are part of the right. experience. experience. And it's a flow between you and them. It, it's, it's, it's different in the... It's different in a, in, a, in a film. And you kind of have to, you block them out, but you have that third eye. You have that thing because you know also that you've got to put your hands, you know, in the same way because of continuity. You know that you can lean forward to here, but you can't lean forward to there because you'll be out of focus. So you have to learn there's a technique that, that, that at first is, um, I found very frustrating, you know, because it kind of locks you in. You know, you do something instinctively and then you go and do the next take. And as a young actor, the, the script supervisor would say, you know, you held the cigarette in your left hand. You know, what? Like, did I? So now I've got to do it all every time? I found that frustrating. You and took away I, from the acting. Yeah, you're thinking about all the other things, and 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 um, now that comes nat now that's just instinctive, and it become and it's nat it's a natural thing. You, you're, you're processing. You're, you're you're remembering what you what you do, you know, and you know that if you do if you if you do an action. You know, you're pre you're pretty much locked into it. You know, so I I think about it, but I'm not really, but I'm not aware of it. You know, whereas before, I, as a younger actor, I found all that a little frustrating. But it's just technique. Yeah, that you have to learn. Um, so, what did it feel like all of a sudden to be in big blockbuster movies that are doing really well? in the box office, like The Professional and The Fifth Element, as far as, you know, widespread attention to these films? Well, people know who you are. You, you're, you're, you know, doing films, I mean, certainly doing things like Harry Potter or Batman, you know, your fan base gets bigger and younger. Um, uh, you know, I was in these very quirky cult, violent, strange films that, you know, you've got Sid and Nancy, you got Prick Up Your Ears, you've got, you know, Track 29, you know, uh, you know, True Romance, they're, and sort of get out there, you know, it's, you it's nice for people to see the work. Yeah. Was Tarantino on set for True Romance a lot? No. No, but, I never saw him. Oh. No. But he did consider you for Pulp Fiction, right? 
No, I don't think so. Where, did you hear that somewhere? I, I just saw a paper. It was um, his casting ideas for the film, and I think I remember seeing your name. Oh, maybe I, maybe I was on the list. Yeah. No, never got the phone call. <laughs> <laughs> it's one thing being on the list. Yeah. <laughs> one thing then being on that other list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If there's one thing you take away from this interview, it should be this. It, 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 it has to be as important to you as oxygen. If filmmaking or acting or whatever it is you want to do isn't as important to you as oxygen, then you should just stop now. It's a major life decision and one that you'll live with for the rest of your life. Filmmaking to me is as important as oxygen. I cannot live without it, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. This interview was split into two parts. Part two will be released next week. Here's a preview of what you'll be hearing. I like to feel that I pushed the boat out a little, that I was a bit of a pioneer, because there weren't English actors playing Americans and I started to play Americans. I know that Robert De Niro used Tim Monarch, my voice coach, and he said, I want, who's the guy that, that, that taught Gary Oldman in the, in the, I want that guy. The work that you're doing on these plays is ultimately, it's all theater based. No one's teaching, yeah, you, you do all of that, what's your inherited values and the, all the work that you do into the plate, that's great. But when the light is going and, you've, and they're screaming, we've got to go, we've got to go, we've got to go, we've got to get it, we've got to get it, we've got to get it, you know, and then it's on you and you've got to deliver at the end of the day and you've got one take. All that and more on the next episode of A Leg Up. Special thanks to Aaron McClaskey for composing a Leg Up's original score. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe to a Leg Up and give it a five-star rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Cheers.